Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Brett Jefferson, the president and co-chief investment officer of Hildine Capital Management, an asset manager he founded in 2008 that oversees $9 billion in structured credit strategies and was listed in Barron's top 100 annual hedge funds ranking for six consecutive years. Our conversation starts with Brett's education in which he majored in lacrosse and minored in school. We hit on the early days of CDOs, putting his knowledge to work at Marathon Asset Management, taking a break, and then starting Hildeen in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. 
We then turned to Hildeen's success in the inefficient market for bank trust preferred securities, its evolution from a founder-driven firm, success factors in the business, current opportunities and risks in CLOs, and Brett's involvement in the Premier Lacrosse League founded by Paul Rabel, who discussed the league on episode 95 that follows in the feed. Please enjoy my first meeting with Brett Jefferson from Hildeen Capital Management. Brett, great to see you. Ted, how are you? I'm doing great. Well, I know you've got a really interesting background. And so why don't we just start, take me back to the beginning. I grew up in Rye, New York. My dad had grown up in Rye, New York. My dad had a pretty unique occupation. He was a sea captain. I come from a long lineage of Jeffersons that have gone to sea. And of course, me being me, I decided not to do that. My dad was in Durban, South Africa. He was good friends with a gentleman who would become my grandfather. And he met my mother and married my mother, who was from South Africa, brought her over to America, where she had never left South Africa, and then had to go to sea. (laughs) So he went off to sea. And my mom had to adapt to America. I have two sisters. As a young child, I I guess it was pretty normal. I loved competing. I was always playing sports. I wouldn't say I was the best student. I would actually say, in some ways, I had challenges as a student. Recently, I kind of jogged my memory and remembered back to those because I had read David and Goliath and also just became a father. And I realized that when they were testing me in fourth grade to see if I had a learning disability, which I thought was a horrible way to go about try to market something, and I rebelled against that in such a way, there was probably a good chance that I did because of certain ways I process things. I think I have an exceptional memory. I think I can really visualize a lot of things, but I always struggled with certain things, whether it be reading or certain ways of of writing. But as they tried to convince me that I should go to this special part of the school, I rebelled against it. I actually walked out of school and my mom was very upset and I was very upset. She said, go back the next day. And I went back the next day and finally they said, he's just not going to go there. You know, my parents tried some of the things. They sent me to a, a private school, which was a few towns away for two years, but the school was fine, but I didn't like the fact that I couldn't play pop Warner football and I couldn't play as much hockey as I wanted. Convinced them to let me come back to the public school in Rye. And it was there I found the game of lacrosse. I fell in love with it. I wanted to learn as much of it as I could. And I just became obsessed with it. Obsessed with it to the point where I went to the national championship game when I was a freshman and was mesmerized by, I was a goalie by the goalie who was player of the year. And I said, I'm going to play in that game one day, realizing that I wasn't from one of these hotbed towns and things were not like they are today where everybody has a youth program and everyone could then either play on a club team or travel team. I realized that probably wouldn't be a bad thing for me to go to a boarding school. To say that my parents were shocked when I mentioned that to them is probably an understatement. I ended up going to a boarding school called Avon Old Farms, which is in Avon, Connecticut. It's an all boys school. And as much as I did not like Being told what to do and having my day managed down to the second, having male role models, having teachers that really cared, being in a really competitive environment where everyone had aspirations and goals was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. I grew a lot there. 
I became a decent student. I wasn't the top student. I wasn't the worst student. Became a really good lacrosse player. And a lot of that also stemmed from I would do anything I could to get better. I would play in college summer leagues when I was in high school. I got recruited by one day Roy Simmons Jr., who was a legendary coach at Syracuse, came to Avon and met with me. He told me he'd gotten his best goalie ever out of Avon, and he heard that I could be the next one. That was an easy sell. He had me at hello. And he handed me an application, and he said, send this to me in a week. I'll let you know. Of course, my father was at sea, because whenever anything like this happened, my father would be at sea. And I went upstairs, called my mom, said, I'm going to Syracuse. And, of course, she was shocked and went to Syracuse, made the team as a freshman, backed up a goalie in the national championship game as a freshman who was second-team All-American. And then over time, other good players would come in. We won the national championship as a senior. I'm going to tell you, it was a great experience, but I also had a lot of learning and maturing to do because I obviously went there thinking that I was going to be a great star, and, and I ended up never being the starting goalie. And it taught me that sometimes you don't get the job you want, but the job that's given to you, you got to make the best of it. And, you know, I did my senior year. My best friend, who was a guy named Neil Alt, was captain. And you know, before the season, he told me we're going to have a great year. We absolutely did. It was just one of the coolest experiences. I will tell you that I played the cross at Syracuse. I had a lot of fun and took advantage of every extracurricular activity they offered. I will tell you that I wasn't the most motivated student. And I didn't really find anything that appealed to me. I think I'm Unlike the kids of today who at 15 try and plan their whole life out, which I don't think is healthy. But I graduated. I had a good time. I won a national championship. And then I moved to Chicago because uh, I had a few friends who had moved out there. It was an easy city. It was a fun city. I started working on the floor as a runner, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. I started playing for a lacrosse team out there. One of the guys on the team asked him if I could talk to him about the business. It turned out that he was a very good floor trader. And he also was in a situation where he was looking for someone to be his assistant. And that just kind of meant you do whatever you're told to do. And I went into the meeting and I had read a book about options and I could probably recite all the different definitions, but I was not at a point where I was an expert. But I think he realized that I could learn it. I could do as I'm told. And he hired me. I worked with them for a few years. I then joined another option arbitrage company. Of course, I thought I was invincible. I could do anything. So I had a couple bucks and I decided I would go try and trade on my own in the futures pit. I would like to say that my business model was sort of like most Wall Street models today where they were priced to perfection. I slugged it out for six months. It didn't work out. And it was kind of a humbling experience. And I was trying to think about what I wanted to do. And I knew I had a few things where I could make enough money to get by. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But a few years before, I had thought about someday going back to Avon and teaching. And when you work on the floor, you get out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So a couple of years before, I had applied to the Master's in History program at DePaul University. I remember that. So I said, maybe I'll go to DePaul University get a master's in history. And I knew why I was doing it. I was doing it to see if I could be a student. And I needed to prove to myself I could be a student. And I needed to see if I could apply myself and do that to maybe do something else. And I thought it would be law school. I thought about MBA and business school also, but really I was thinking I'd probably go to law school. 
I remember going in and meeting with the dean of the history department, and it was a gentleman by the name of Father Croak. He was an interesting man. He was a priest, he was a lawyer, and he had a PhD in history. And he had some very interesting views on life. He became my advisor. I entered into the program, buckled down, and I made dean's list the first semester. I then made dean's list the second semester. I then realized I wanted to go to business school, and I applied to Northwestern to their evening program, Kellogg, and (laughs) didn't get in. And then I went back and applied again, didn't get in, got a meeting with somebody, kind of told them my story, and they let me in. And I gave more effort into that than anything else I think I've ever done. I really, really grew as a person, loved the group environment, learned more about learning and different ways to understand things and different ways to approach things. Throughout that thread, there were a couple of things you mentioned I just wanted to ask you about. One is this question of mentors and models. Your father was out at sea and you had a couple of coaches that recruited you. You had the father at DePauw. What did you learn from those key teaching mentors and, as you said, male role models? It was kind of interesting because I grew up in a household where I had two sisters, my mom. My dad was away for six months a year because that was the job he decided. Both my parents were only children, so I didn't even have uncles or cousins or anything like that. When I got to Avon, there was a gentleman there who eventually became the headmaster. His name was Ken Marock. Ken just understood people well and really had the ability to get the most out of people. He wouldn't quit on people. Coach Simmons at Syracuse is one of the most unique individuals probably ever. I mean, he's a fine artist. That is what he does besides coaching. So he's not your typical coach. He takes what he has and doesn't try and force his system on them, but allows the players to really play in the way they want. And something which no other coach I think ever does is he encourages you to take risks. And our practices weren't like other practices where they were very regimented. We would just play. And he would want you to take risks. And he would tell you, okay, if you took that risk and it didn't work out, do you understand why it didn't work out? And if you think you can do it the next time, you should do it. Another thread you mentioned is this desire to prove yourself. So you went from sports and then you wanted to get Syracuse or you want to play a national championship team and you did that. And then later on, when you're starting in your career, you decide, hey, I should go see if I can, as you said, prove yourself that you could be a student. Where does that come from? I'm not the type of person that you should go and tell you can't do something to. If I think I can do it, I'm going to do it. I haven't always won. I realized what it means to lose. I remember getting to business school and everyone had been perfect at everything they'd ever done. And I was like, wow, I I tried to be a floor trader. It didn't work out. I I wanted to be a starting goalie at Syracuse. I was the backup. That's a great achievement. But I think it's just this, maybe it was when I was young and I had to work a little bit harder to be a student and to kind of overcome some obstacles there. But I don't know. Maybe I'm hard-headed. I mean, I haven't won everything in this world, but when I go after things, I really get to a point where it's like, I'm not going to fail at this. Yeah. All right. So let's turn to your coming out of business school and starting on your career. Where'd you head? I got hired at Smith Barney in their sales and trading program. And I can remember going through the training program. And afterwards, I got placed into an area where it wasn't one of my final 
choices. And they one day brought me into a room and said, there's this new product called CBOs, and we would like you to figure it out. What year was that? That was 1997. I had to ask them, what exactly is the CBO? And they said, well, it's a securitization of high-yield bonds. And I said, okay. And I really had no idea what they were asking me to do. But they basically said, this is going to be your new job. and You need to figure this out. And I really set off as saying, okay, I'm not really good with spreadsheets. I have to build these spreadsheets. I then have to get these deals rated. You have to sell the notes by running different scenario analysis. So I started out by going down to people who actually did this in the asset back area and in the mortgage area. They would help me to an extent, but they would also try and sabotage you in some ways. Because if you know anything about Wall Street, everybody is very territorial and they all want to take businesses. So I would get models and figure out how auto securitization or credit card securitization, but this was dynamic and I had to learn this. I just remember working and constantly being in the office and constantly getting through this. Merge with Solomon. I got moved into their group. Of course, they said that they totally had mastered this and I was lucky to be there, which happens in every merger. And I learned more about it. I then left Solomon Smith Barney, went to Chase and kind of did the same thing. I just was always working, always putting these deals together. And then I got to a point where I just wasn't crazy about being this structure slash banker, putting these deals together, running all these scenario analysis. And I met with a gentleman from Bear Stearns and you know talked to him about different positions they may have and called me back a few weeks later. And I thought, well, I'm going to get a job. And then all of a sudden he said, no, there's this guy named Bruce Richards. He runs this firm called Marathon. And he has heard that there's going to be good opportunities buying these secondary positions. And he asked me, how could he get someone to do this? And I said, you really need to get someone who understands the structure. And I thought of you. And I knew Mr. Richards because he ran the mortgage group at Smith Barney and didn't pick me when I was going through as a trainee. I had this reputation of being Machiavellian, which I think is a fair assessment. And I knew that if I went in to meet with him, if I wasn't fully confident in what I was going to do, and I have to caveat that is I had no idea of what I was going to do. But I had to be confident. So I went in there and I was really confident. And he was intrigued by it. And I was telling him about how I would run different scenarios for different investors. And I would build models. and I would do all these things. And, and he asked me, do you think you could find value? And I said, yeah, I definitely think there's value for these deals that were put together. And it came down to really this last meeting. And he said, I need to know what you're going to need to do this. And I was kind of confused. I said, are you going to give me money to invest? And he said, yes. I said, what do you mean? What do I need? I need a computer. What else would I need? And I found out later that he was talking to another person who was saying they needed five people and all these different resources. And I think he looked at me and said, let's give this a shot. And I'm not going to tell you that I fully understood what I was going to be doing, but I knew that it was a lot better than what I was doing right now. And I needed to take this chance. How did you think about what that opportunity was? It was a very primitive market. There were a few dealers who actually would look at these products in the secondary market. All of these securitizations were sold and they never really traded. There was also this problem in the high yield market and the telecom sector. And about 40% of all CBOs or CLOs had telecom bonds. And that was just the largest issuer there. So 
a lot of folks looked at them as to what they were worth today. So if you think about what a securitization is, you take, let's just say, 50 high-yield bonds, and they're paying you 7%. And then you can go out and finance 90% of it because you have a 10% equity tranche, and you can finance that at 5%. So now you have this arbitrage, and that's the equity gets the balance. But what was happening is, is as you have defaults, you start breaching certain covenants. And most people looked at these transactions as what are they worth today? So they would do it on an NAV basis. And I remember looking at some offerings that they were getting. And I was, when I first came in, I would run just certain scenarios. And of course, I would be questioned, like, why are you running that scenario? Why not run a different one? And I didn't really have an answer. And I knew that there was no way that I was ever going to get anywhere unless I could get the two principals of the firm who were Bruce and Bo, to understand exactly what was going on. So everyone was looking at this product on an NAV basis. And NAV is very, very simple. You take the value of the assets and then you subtract the value of the liabilities. That gets you to the, the NAV of if you're looking at the senior most tranche. The, the problem was, was that high yield bonds at this time were trading, let's just say on average, at 80 cents in the dollar. And you also had an interest rate swap within these deals and rates were at 1%. So that's a negative liability. That's the senior part of the capital structure. But if you also looked at the NAV the day before a coupon was paid, if you were breaching a coverage test, this money would be trapped just like a company that's paying dividends decides not to pay dividends and take that money and pay down debt. So if you did your NAV the day before a coupon, and then you did it the day after, and your NAV goes up. And I, and I started to ask myself, I said, well, how can you capitalize on this NAV if the deals were written in a way where you couldn't capitalize on that NAV? It didn't really matter what it was worth today. So I came up with this methodology, which we still use today, and it was basically the value of the assets, the value of the structure, the value of the option. And the value of the option is how do you break these deals? And deals can always be broken if times are good. Usually it's if the equity decides to call the deal and you pay off all the debt. When times are bad, you get to an event of default, depending on what the indenture states. And that's a very important aspect is what the indenture states. You then liquidate the deal and you take the proceeds and you pay off through the waterfall. And that's why they look at the senior bond and say, well, the NAV of this bond is 75. And I sat down with them and I said, look, these high-yield bonds, you, know, you have a great credit team here. Let's look at these high-yield bonds that are in this category here where they're trading between 75 cents and par. How many of them do you think are going to fail? And they said, well, none of them are going to fail. I said, okay. So let's just put them all at 100 par, okay? And then let's just look forward. And we'll look at all this value that we're going to be trapping going forward. We'll give some recovery to the other ones. And not only did your senior bond pay off, but your junior bond paid off. And I convinced them, I said, look, we should not be looking at the senior bonds. We should be buying these junior bonds. These bonds are picking because most of the time the picking a picking bond is a bond that's not paying interest. And they said, sure, go do that. And then I also started to understand the market in general. And I came up with this little statement, which I said, that we need to be proactive, to be reactive. And this is a different market than other ones because sourcing is so important. There's two other asset classes where sourcing is this important. I would say munis and emerging markets. Information became a very important component and being proactive became an important component. So what I did was I got a hold of this database that Moody's had, came out every three months. And I went through and looked at every single deal that looked like it might be of interest. 
I went and got information. I modeled them up. I put this list together. I gave it to some people that I trusted. There weren't a lot of people I trusted. I became good friends and partners with a guy at Citigroup, a guy by the name of Donald Quinton, who he and I kind of looked at the world the same way after I walked him through this. He and I sort of went out and got every single bond we could get. I draw the analogy of you share information and you get partners in this product because sourcing is important and they can be tricky and you need to understand them. But it's also, if you're dealing in equities, you're dealing in high yield bonds where you can just go and buy a bond. I call it like shopping at the mall. You go to the mall, you know what you're going to buy. What we do is like going to the Turkish Bazaar and you show up with money, okay? And you're looking around and if there's one vase over there that you're saying, wow, that's a valuable vase and no one else sees it. If you don't buy that vase, there's no other vase. So you have to be ready to source it, to get it, to buy it. And you can't have this mind frame like I'm looking for this, this, and this. You have to have a broader mindset as to I'm ready to buy whatever that opportunity is, but you need to be ready to buy it. Was the seminal insight when you were figuring that out, why don't you walk through that value of the asset, value of the structure, value of the option? It's kind of a circular argument because it starts with the value of the option, goes back to the value of the asset, and comes back to, to the value of the option. The value of the option is if I'm buying a bond and it's in trouble, so it could go into a vent in default. If it goes into a vent in default, what happens? And if it goes into an event of default and the senior most class can vote to liquidate, well, that option tells me if I'm buying a junior bond, that bond can go away. Now, if it's a deal where there's five tranches and every single tranche needs to vote and needs to vote 66 and two thirds, no one's going to ever vote to get zero. And if I buy that bond, which is worth zero, and now I have a blocking vote. so. Understanding that option and what can happen, because most of the times I'm buying things that look messy. The next thing is, is when you move over to the assets and you're looking at the assets, it doesn't matter what it's worth today. It matters what it's going to be worth in the future. And one of the interesting things about if you have a deal and the value of the option is very, very strong, you can have assets that trade down to zero, trade back up. As long as that option can't be exercised, then you're okay. So it's not looking at the amount of loss that's going to occur right now, or what is this pool telling you? It's what will these assets eventually pay off? And you then look at the structure. When I look at the value of the structure, it's how does the waterfall work? When I'm trapping cash, who does it go to? What are some of the structural components that will allow if there is a manager to do certain things? So there's way more art in this than there is science because you can't quantify any of this stuff. You can quantify, here's what the assets are worth and here's what they make pay you one day. But you can't go and quantify what is that option worth today. There's a lot of qualitative assessments that go into this. And so how did it play out when you started buying this stuff? We bought a lot of it. We bought a lot of them. I would be sourcing them. Probably top producer of Marathon for the years 2003 to 2005. I did very well. I was a guy who never made much money in his life. I did make money. It was unfortunate in 2006. I departed. I'd love to say we hugged it out at the end, but we didn't. I look back at Marathon right now, and Bruce gave me an opportunity. If I hadn't had that opportunity, I don't know where I would be. He has a way of pushing and motivating, which sometimes can be a lot. But he did give me an opportunity. I'm thankful for him for that. I left in 06 and didn't really know what I wanted to do. 
the world had changed a lot. And this is when the advent of everybody writing derivatives on everything, which maybe I wasn't smart enough to understand that, but I just didn't get it. I also looked at the value of the option in a CDO. And I said, if I short this, whatever it might be, mortgage bond, ABS bond into this structure, and the structure never liquidates, I can't get out. And I kind of came to this conclusion that the only way this is ever going to work is if the entire world blows up. <laughs> it almost did. <laughs> but I took the summer off. I had made a couple bucks. I had a house down at the Jersey Shore, which was a big house. And I had a bunch of buddies I rented rooms to. And I had just started dating the woman who now is my wife. And I told her, like, you want to come hang out on the weekends with me and my buddies at the Jersey Shore? She was a good sport and had a lot of fun. And I started to think about what I was going to do. I got married at this place called Hildeen. And then I thought about what the next step was. And I had spoken to a few different funds. And I just felt like I was never going to get to do what I really wanted to do, which is just go out and find good opportunities. One day I just said, I'm going to start my own fund. I will be perfectly candid that I had no idea what that meant. I hired a few guys. John Scandal, who's still with me, is uh, my chief operating officer. And he worked in the CLO business at City, and he was also a lawyer, so he was a good person. There was a fellow named Mike Nickel who came over and joined me, and he had worked with me at Marathon. There was another young guy who joined, and I made sure that we had enough money to pay salaries for two years, health insurance for two years, a couple Bloombergs, computers, to pay for the lovely rent at the office we had. And I said, let's give it a shot. And I was the first investor in the fund and uh, invested a couple million dollars. And off we went. What was the strategy at the time? The strategy was to find opportunities in distressed structured credit. And in 2008, there were going to be a lot of opportunities in distressed structured credit. And we started looking at non-agency mortgages. And I started to try and break them down. And because I always looked at assets and could get information on assets and you're dealing with, let's just say anywhere between 50 to 200 assets. I could do enough when I was looking at 4,000 assets and everyone's saying, you know, I don't know if this information is correct. You were doing a more of a statistical model and that just wasn't the way I thought. We started buying second priority pieces of ABS CDOs, which were all blowing up and you would get, you were buying them to one or two coupons and you knew that they were going to go away. You knew that you were never going to get any principal, but if they stayed around for a longer period of time, they turned out to do well. We did do well. We didn't have a lot of money to invest at that time. And then one day, somebody handed me an offering on a bank trust-preferred CDO. The bank, I call them a Trump CDO. And I knew what they were, and I never really looked at one. But as I started to look at it, I said, okay, what is different about this? I mean, as I looked at the trustee report, none of the names of the underlying assets were listed in the trustee report. So I said, okay, how would you ever understand this asset class? And then I realized if I could get that information, I would have a huge advantage. Looking back on it, what is a trust preferred? So a trust preferred is a form of debt that this started in the mid 90s and banks could issue this debt and it would count as tier one capital. And tier one capital is basically equity for banks. And banks made money if they were more levered. And if 25% of your tier one capital could be in this form of debt, every bank wanted to issue as much as they possibly could. 
the one caveat which the regulators made them put into these securitizations was was that you had to be allowed to defer for up to five years before you went into default. And they basically said, look, you're a bank, and if you have problems, you can't make your interest payments. You're just going to have to defer. It's cumulative. You'll have to pay it back. So after all the big banks issued it, there were 8,000 banks in the country, all the little banks wanted. So the KBWs, the First Tennessees, the Samuel O'Neills of the world went out, and they would underwrite these banks, and they would securitize them. And they were very simple securitizations that were very debt-friendly. But as I stated before, the names of the assets weren't within the deals. So I said, how big is this universe? And it was 91 securitizations, and there was about, I think there was about 1,300 banks and insurance companies in this universe. And what we did was we went out and got some of the original marketing material where they would list the names of the banks that may be going in. And I realized they're probably not going to change. But then it was putting the puzzle together because you would get the trustee report and it would list the states the banks were in, the maturities of these trust preferreds and the coupons of the trust preferreds and the size of it. And in the world of banks, there's one resource, which is called SNL. And SNL is both a news publication and it's also a place where all of the call reports, which go to the FDIC on the banks, are accumulated and organized. So we would go through those and say, we got a bank in Iowa, trust preferreds mature in 2035. Boom, we found it. And we would just go through and, and find these and put this puzzle together. But, but then I had to understand what's a bank because I was not a bank expert. But I wasn't a high yield expert at Marathon either. So I would call in research analysts, KBW and Sandler, and they would come in and talk to me. And they would talk to me about bank earnings and say, I'm not worried about the stock. Okay. Tell me, how do I look at a bank and say, here's a bank which is not going to have problems. Here's a bank that's going to have problems. And they started to walk me through these ratios. And I said, okay, now I've got it. So now we started to get these ratios. One of the interesting things with these securitizations was, was that because the bankers who created them never thought there was going to be a problem, they took all the banks that were deferring and defaulted and put them into one category as a defined term, we call that defaulted security. And I started to look at these and I said, well, that bank hasn't failed. That bank is actually deferring. So we started to pick up the phone, call these banks, started asking, why are you deferring? And they said, well, the FDIC came in. And they said, you could have problems. We don't really know what they are, but we'd like you to stop paying all dividends. And most of this were to the private banks. And we started to hear this more and more and more. We started to realize, like, these banks aren't deferring because they want to or they have to. They're being deferred out of just this necessity by the FDIC because there's too many banks for them to look at right now. These pieces of these securitizations came out in small bite sizes. We were buying stuff for cents on the dollar in large quantities. To be able to source this asset, I needed to be able to be the person that saw it first. And because this was, it wasn't a big market, it was a $35 billion market, so it didn't make sense for a lot of folks to get into it. Like, let's just say the non-agency market, which was over a trillion dollars. But there were dealers out there who would see a lot of this, but they didn't understand it. So I would give them the information. There was really two ways of sourcing. It was working with the dealers that had capital and working with the brokers who didn't have capital. And for the dealer who had capital, I would give them this information. They wanted to buy these securities for themselves. So I would, I would give them to them. They would come to me and they would say, what do you think of it? I would say, I would love to buy that security. And sometimes I'd say, oh, let's split it. 
And sometimes they'd say, I don't have any money right now. I'll have money in a month, but I don't have money right now. So we had something called a layaway plan where I'd say, why don't you buy this? I mean, we have no agreement, but I might come to you in a couple months and say, could you sell me some of that? And they usually did because I was giving them the information to understand it and they could prove to their boss that they did. With the small regional brokers, it was really a simple thing. They had two things that motivated them. Getting the trade done quickly so they didn't lose it and getting paid well. And I never haggled with a guy. If you're buying a bond at six and you pay a guy a half a point, you're not buying it at six because it's going to seven. You're buying it at six because it's going somewhere a lot higher. And I made sure I was the first call from all those guys. And that's an important component of being in these quirky markets of structured products. How did you think about who to trust? Because you're coming at this with a big information advantage. And you said in some instances, you're sharing that information with people and almost giving them your edge in that particular trade. So how did you decide who are the people that you wanted to deal with? I knew there were certain dealers that I wanted to deal with. I had known them from the past. I had known them and did trust them. On the regional broker side, it was, you just wanted to be their first call. And there wasn't that sharing of information as much. And a lot of times you got the information from them because you could just always ask them, can you see that original holder who has that? Can you see what information he might have? Because I don't really understand this. And you would get that from that. But it's really interesting that you, you say this about the whole information. So we did something that I will guarantee you nobody else would ever do. And it happened when our largest investor at the time said to me, he said, Brett, what are you going to do if everybody wants to get out of this product? You have convinced me that you're right. You've convinced other people that you're right. But you have this information. I said, look, if everybody wanted to get out, I would take all this information and I would put it on the internet. I'd let everybody see it. And I'd let everybody understand it. So we closed our fund at about $350 million. And we were sort of just going along and trying to get more people involved. So what we did was we created a product called Trump's Info. And it was free because we looked at the Wikipedia model because Wikipedia doesn't charge anything. There's no liability. We thought about selling it, but I just gave it away. And now everybody had it. And I was creating more people coming into this space. But we still had this advantage because we still knew more of it. And as this was happening and things were going up, we were getting more money, but we were also creating more and more folks that were coming into it. Look, I can say with full confidence that every dealer that's in the space right now, and there's a lot more than just two got their information from us. A lot of our competitors got their information from us. It's okay. But it allowed us to really just go to the next level. And what did that do to the efficiency of pricing when you started releasing the information? This is still an inefficient asset class. And it's still inefficient for a lot of reasons. One is it doesn't trade a lot. It's a small asset class. I always say to people, this was the same size as the non-agency market, which I think trades to perfection. You know, it's trading at two and a half percent type returns. People who go through and understand banks would look at this and say, like, this should be trading a lot higher. What it is right now today, it's really high quality assets trading at really high yield spreads. And I get it. If you talk to other folks in the market, especially today, and you ask them, when do you think there's going to be another banking crisis? No one's saying there's going to be. So it made it more efficient. Are we talking about efficient asset class? No, I'm not a big believer in the efficient market theory. When you buy a bond three times for a buck and a half and it ends up paying you 140 points, that's not efficient markets. 
When you made mistakes in the process of doing this, where did the underwriting matter more than, say, structure? So I'll be really honest with you. There was a time for a while where we did not have 100% of the actual banks. And I'm going to tell you that there's a lot of first national banks in this country. There's a lot of first Cherokees. There's a lot of bank ones. I mean, there's 8,000 banks in the country and they're all over the place. And you think you've got it right. And then all of a sudden you're like, we actually had the wrong bank. So we weren't perfect. I think there was enough wiggle room and we were being compensated so well for the risk that it was okay. I can remember one investor early on, he's an investor who's been with me for a long time, done a lot of things. He showed me a bond. I showed him a bond. I think we had paid 15 for it. He said, what do you think you're going to get for it? And I'm saying, well, I think you're probably going to get about 50. He said, why 50? And I said, well, and he said, Brett, I don't think you're being honest with me. What do you really think you're going to get for that? And I said, I think you're going to get all your money back and all your back to interest. He said, well, why didn't you tell me that? Because you would have thought I was crazy. I just paid 15 for it. And I could lose 15. Like that, I knew that was my downside. That was easy. So, yeah, there was a lot of wiggle. There's a lot of inefficiencies in this asset class. You'd mentioned earlier the value of the option. And a lot of that in distressed situations tends to be one class against another. Imagine somewhere along the way, you ran into an example or two where you had to stand up for the class that you bought to derive value from that. Yeah. Not so, so much with the value of the option, but just in general, I think from the day we started in this asset class, we were having to be the ones to enforce the rights. I mean, it first began with some of these deals had managers. The managers, when the deals had closed, they had two years to change assets, but we were noticing that assets were coming in and out. And somebody had convinced the trustee that this undefined term called exchange should be allowed. And then we found out that people were being paid to do these exchanges. So we quickly stopped that. But everybody who had issued a trust preferred was very, very motivated to see if they could buy their debt back at a discount. And if you were dealing with Hildean Capital as the holder, that's something which we could work out. If you're dealing with a securitization, it's a lot trickier. And we had many, many debate about this. And one in particular was a bank in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a bank called Bank Atlantic run by a gentleman named Alan Levan, about $300 million of trups. And he had a great business model. He was open seven days a week. I think he gave everybody a toaster who came in, made it really, really easy for you to give him deposits, but his loan book wasn't that great. And he desperately needed to solve his Trump problem. And we had many, many phone calls. And as I talked about before, SNL was really the publication that people followed in this space. If you're JP Morgan, you're in the Wall Street Journal. If you're a bank that's a billion dollars, you're written up in SNL. And I got to know a reporter there. And I basically made a statement like, you know, look, it's going to be par or failure. And Mr. Levan cut a deal with BB&T and he called it his elegant solution, which was basically instead of getting paid money, he just kept a bunch of assets and all the trucks over while he sold the rest of the bank to BB&T. And we had to go file suit in Delaware. We were not a very big firm. And with that being said, the judge saw through it. I had to testify. They asked me what par or failure meant. Mr. Levan had a 
had a lawyer, which you couldn't have found a guy in the movies to play this guy. He came in yelling how Mr. Hill Dean was ruining everything. But there is a very important opinion that was written, the Bank Atlantic opinion, which basically says, if you're going to sell the assets of your company, substantially all the assets of your company, the liabilities must follow. And that stopped a lot of it for about three months. And then there was this situation where we call it Zinc 7. And basically there was a CDO squared that a hedge fund called Anchorage had bought the senior, the A1 tranche at a discount. And I think they probably paid 30 cents a dollar. And they wanted to liquidate the deal. The problem was, was the value of the option or the event of default language was written in a way where you needed 66 and two thirds of everybody to vote. They didn't like that. So they decided to file the CDO into bankruptcy. And of course, every law firm looked at that and said, gee, this is a great way that I can make money. So they wrote, everyone was writing these opinions about how this would be the greatest thing to ever happen to the CDO market. And I knew that this was a really, really bad thing. And I knew that you're basically taking this value of the option where I buy bonds because I know they can't, they may go into event of default, they may be in an event of default, but I know that you can't do certain things because you need certain people to vote. And now that's all been thrown out the window. So I had a friend who worked at a bank and the A2 tranche, which was the second priority, was a $27 million tranche. And he agreed with me that this bond was going to have zero value unless somebody showed up to court. He worked at a big bank and there was no way a big bank was showing up to court in 2011. I convinced him to sell me all $27 million of that tranche. I paid less than what I probably pay for a nice bottle of wine when I go to a nice dinner. And I showed up and I will tell you that Anchorage was appalled that I would ever have the audacity to show up and object. And it was not nice. <laughs> they were not nice to me. And it was also kind of a, also a funny thing is because I had just moved to Darien, Connecticut. We had not met our neighbors yet. And actually one of our neighbors was a partner at Anchorage. And I had to explain to my wife that I just filed suit against this firm and our neighbor is a partner at that firm. And she kind of looked at me like, really? You had to go there. But the judge actually ruled that it could go into bankruptcy. And a lot of that was on a technicality. And I'm not going to say that this was a judge in Trenton, New Jersey, who was getting a, something different than the usual credit card dispute or whatever you get in bankruptcy court in Trenton, New Jersey. But he wanted to hear this case. And then I think he realized that there was something wrong here. And he one day turned and said, I think we should mediate this. And I'd like to be the mediator. Let's just say it was resolved. It didn't happen for a while. It then happened again. And the guy who did it was a friend of mine. And I pleaded with him not to do it. And this time, it wasn't just Hildine who showed up. Everyone showed up. The judge, I don't want to say she threw the book at him. She threw the whole library at him. And needless to say, this is never going to happen again, which is a good thing. You have to think about it. When you buy something, you have a rule book, and that's called an indenture. And you're buying it under the premise that this indenture is correct. And if all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, I don't like the indenture, I'm going to make my own rules, that doesn't work well. When you started buying these trucks, you really found an inefficient area and owned it. Obviously, it played out really well. At some point in time, when did you decide to sort of move on into other areas of credit within Hildeen? So, trucks are still going on. 
It's eventually going to end one day. It's still inefficient. We're still finding interesting things. We're doing different things to create alpha. So that is it. But in 2011, we started to branch out into other things. We started to get more involved in the CLO market. We became heavily involved in the TARP auctions, which people talk about free government money, but really the TARP auctions, and I don't want to talk about JP Morgan. I'm talking about little banks that got $5 million of TARP. This was like free money. They made it where the rules of it were so overbearing that any compliance officer that read this would say, there's no way you're going into this. And every sentence ended with, and if you violate this, you become a bank, which is the last thing they ever want to be. So the rules were onerous. There were a few players. We didn't have one default. We didn't take a loss on any of them. Pretty much they're all gone. Most of them were cumulative perpetual preferreds that paid 5%, stepped up to 9%, and you were buying them at 50 cents in the dollar. They worked out very well. We did some other ABS stuff, mortgage stuff, but I think the firm as a whole really changed a lot in 2016. In 2015, we had a great year. We sold a billion dollars of trucks. And a lot of that was because I looked at what we owned and I said, you know, look guys, when we're buying stuff for two, three cents on the dollar, we were just saying buy the whole pool. And now a lot of it's rallied. And we looked at it and we said, let's put it into three categories, the stuff we love, the stuff we like, and the stuff we're not crazy about. We were a $2.4 billion firm. I did something that I don't think most other people would ever do. I sold a billion dollars and I gave back. I went from a $2.4 billion firm to a $1.4 billion firm. I think more importantly, whenever you have an inefficient asset class, but whenever you have large size, people show up. And when we did this auction, 29 people signed NDAs, 11 people really paid attention. We got a 10% premium to what it was trading for. And then I had two partners who had been with me and they decided to leave and actually they retired. And fair to say, I probably paid them a lot of money and I'm okay with that. But I also had to think about what I wanted to do. And I had looked at the firm at that point and the firm was a firm where Brett did the investor meetings. Brett made the decisions about where we're going, how do we set up infrastructure. And yeah, people might have executed trades, but I was sort of doing it all. And we were getting more complex. I did think about retiring until my wife told me, you're not coming home every day, so you need to go somewhere. And at that point, my youngest was just, was very young. She was three. You know, she's six now. And I don't think it's healthy for you know, kids to not see one of their parents go to work each day. So, you know, I'm going to work until she goes to college. And that's just something. So three of my kids see their dad go to the office every day. But I needed to figure out how I wanted the firm to be. And I thought about that a lot. And, you know, I changed a lot of things. Then I brought us up to a kind of the new dimension. But I brought in a guy who I met, Dushant Mara. And I didn't know much about him except for that he came highly recommended from two people. And what I saw very quickly was somebody who really had abilities. Reminded me a lot of when I was at Marathon. Really had a good vision. I think more importantly, he understood me and understood where I wanted to go with things, but also knew that I just wasn't going to change that quickly. A great example of that is where we are in the CLO market today. The CLO market is obviously with the COVID crisis, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of downgrades, there's a lot of defaults. But this isn't a, like the Trump's market where there's 91 different deals and 
1,100 banks and it's static. This is a $750 billion market where there's 125 different managers, where there's about 1,000 deals with 3,000 different underlying. So this has gone from something that you can do yourself to big data. And I remember when Dushan came in, he said, you know, we should hire a programmer. I would be ever a programmer. Look at my great spreadsheets. And now we have four programmers. They just call them different things. But we have big data. We use big data to break down. And we use the same methodology. We're just using different tools to do that, to understand that. We still have the Trump's training. And we still have a lot of other things going on. But it's going to the next step of saying, okay, to really be smart now in the CLO space and to take advantage of these opportunities, which there's going to be a lot of great ones, it's you need to be able to adapt to the times and you can't just do it piecemeal. You can't do it one off. So that's something which we've built out and really impressed with right now. As you thought about the business and the advantages you've seized over the years, what have been the most important principles that you've used to kind of drive the business forward? Somebody asked me once, what does it take to be successful as a hedge fund manager? And I kind of looked at this, what does it really take to be successful in business? And I think there are four things. I think you need to be smart. You need to work hard. You need to be innovative. You need to understand risk. And if you were to ask me, what are your strengths? I get risk. I am innovative. I work hard. I'm smarter than the average bear. Understanding risk and valuing that component of it is really, really important. But structured products is really a place where there's not a lot of creativity. There's not a lot of people who can get out of looking at things on a statistical basis and trying to quantify credit is something which has never worked and I don't think ever will. Because you're basically saying, okay, these guys at the rating agencies, they did it right. Or I'm missing the motivations of the underlying leverage. So really, those components are important, but I think we have a couple principles at the firm. The first one is, is we manage scale well. And we deal with asset classes where there's a finite amount of them. I, I don't go into the CMBS market. It's a very big market. There's a lot of smart people in there. It's just not a place I'm going to go to. But we do it in a different way where we may buy certain securities that are in a securitization that have CMBS. But managing scale is really, really important because there's only so much to buy. And what happens is, is that a lot of folks go out and they take in money to take it in and then they figure out what to do. And in the world of structured products right now, we've just gone through probably the worst month ever in month of March for structured products firms. And, you know, if there were 20 of them, probably five are out of business, five should be out of business. The next five had to go and get a bailout money. And then there's five that are okay. And we're okay. And we're okay because... We didn't go take in money and then just go use overnight leverage and do silly things. So managing scale is something which we've always done. We've closed the fund a lot of times. We've given money back. We've never just grown to grow. That's an important thing. I think the next thing we do is, is we make sure that people understand what we're doing. Each month we send out a report and it shows the different things that we've purchased. And people can really look at it and get what we're doing because I hear too much about style drift. And I'm not saying that we don't start to look at different things. We have a PM that we brought in with our name of Justin Gregory. And when I was asking people about what's really good about him, they said, well, he's the guy everyone goes to when there's something really different out there to understand. So we can find niche little opportunities. Like we're looking at Ginny Bay IOs right now, which have been a great trade because we get the prepayment penalty. It comes actually to us. So that's a great thing. But 
I want our investors to know that. It also answers a lot of questions. And I think third most important is, is we align our interests very, very well. And I mean, besides being one of the largest investors in this business, we align our interests through a fee structure, which is unique. And we take half of our incentive fee when we give the money back. And, you know, if you think about your typical hedge fund, on January 1st, they figure out how much money they make. On January 2nd, they pay themselves. And on January 3rd, they don't have much equity in their business. And we keep this incentive fee around for a while. And we've even taken it one step further where we've created a new share class where we'll say we'll take all the incentive fee when we give you the money back. So I'm not afraid to do that. Unlike Wall Street firms, which try and always are beating earnings, we want to have a long-term view and survival in this business is not that easy. I think the other thing that we do, which is really, really different, is we have one P&L for the firm. And when people come in, you know, and I'm interviewing them, and I'm usually looking at their resume, I'm like, what happened here? You hear a lot about, wow, we brought in this one person to trade this, and they blew the place up. They took on too much leverage. And everyone here, you kind of look at the value of the, value of the assets, value of the structure, value of the option, may have different views on the world, but we kind of look at it all together. And the other thing is, is it allows us to do R&D. And in our world, R&D is really important. A great example of that is we almost bought a reinsurance company. We actually did buy it. We bought it in a bankruptcy auction. And instead of hiring somebody to come in and tell me what this was going to be worth or where the risks are or whatever else you need to know, I took two folks internally. I said, I need you to work on this. They spent a lot of time on it and finally came back to me and said, we should pass on this. They weren't looking at this and saying, you're taking me away from my day job. Here's my P&L. They weren't doing that. So they looked at this from a bigger picture. I don't know if it would work everywhere else. It does work here. It's not going to change. And I think it's an important risk management component, which a lot of other folks don't have. Well, let's turn to the markets today, because certainly your area, people are thinking about distressed credit and what you're doing is sort of that next level of complexity. So we're sitting here, it's the end of April. What are you seeing and what do you think the next couple of years look like? I think the elephant in the room, which is the CLO market, I think that a lot of people got into this market. You know, if you look at it over the last few years, there's been two places and structured products that insurance companies could put their money to work. And that's CMBS and that's the CLO market. And the CLO market, this is going to be different than the one that happened at Marathon. This is going to be different than 08. I call this, this one being my third tour of duty. And I don't know if I got a fourth one in because this one's been a tough one. But that being said, the last time in 2008 with all the mortgages, the rating agencies really got read the riot act because they didn't act. Rating agencies are acting. And within these securitizations, you basically have different covenants where if you're a triple C basket, because you're buying double B and single B, mostly single B, when that gets breached, your triple C basket breaches and you start to breach certain covenants and bonds pick, and then the underlying bonds get downgraded. So we will see massive amounts of downgrading. What I think we will see is, is you will see certain names default, but you have to remember that all of these companies that are in the CLOs, most of them come from private equity sponsors. And the amount of private equity capital in these names today is much higher than it's ever been. Then you have to then look at the next step, which is I'm going to go back to when I was looking at the Trump space. When I was looking at the Trump space, 
everybody was raising money because the previous time before, which was the savings and loan crisis, all this money had been raised and the regulators came and just gave all the assets to private equity companies. So all these private equity companies raised money and they went out and they said, okay, we're going to buy failed banks. We're going to buy the assets from failed banks. And the FDIC did a very, very smart thing. They said, we're not going to give failed banks to private equity to banks that were created by private equity banks or to private equity companies. We're going to give it to other banks and reward them. And those franchises were worth a lot because the banks could get into new states. But what it did was it forced all the private equity money to go from buying the failed assets to go and investing in companies that were having problems. And you're going to see the same thing today, and it's going to be driven by the Fed. The Fed's coming in, and I'm going to just say the Fed has done a great job. And they had a great playbook. In 2008, I don't think it ever would have happened if we didn't have 2008. But they're doing a great job. And basically, they're going to be making it so all these opportunities that people were looking at are not going to be there. And the one thing I can guarantee you is, is that people who raise money will never give it back. Okay? They're just not going to give it back and say, I couldn't find anything. So they're going to find something to invest in. And I think that's going to come to helping these problem credits within the CLO market. So it will be ugly. It will be messy. There will be great opportunities. The bigger thing is, is that not every CLO is made the same. And what we do here is, is we go through and we break down the structures first so we understand the comments. We then look at the managers. We look at the managers in the same way that somebody comes and looks at me as to why are you in this business? Why are you different? And just because you're at some large private equity company, that doesn't necessarily you're really motivated. And you may have so much exposure to one name, it's hard to move it. But when we look at managers who really do a good job, it's the ones who know how to navigate the system, navigate within the box and trade around and create value and do all these different things. Now, that being said, it comes back to the same thing. We're shopping at the Turkish Bazaar. So we got to have money. We got to be ready. But you have opinions now. And then taking it to the next step is the big data and understanding. When you're looking at a structured product, you're not going through and looking at every single name in the same and giving it the same amount of time. You're really, it's, I used to talk about the 80-20 rule. You're spending 80% of your time on 20% of your assets. Well, what we're doing right now is just we're going out and we're looking at every single industry that could have COVID exposure. I don't have to tell you what those are. Hospitality, energy is one, but that's not really that energy is just another problem in general. Travel. And look at these industries and saying, who's drawn their revolvers? Who's going to be able to get through this? Okay, because remember, it's not about earnings. It's about survival. We're in the death business here. Okay, we want to know, are you going to die or are you not going to die? You know, all these underlying credits. And it's, it might sound like a morbid thing, but, but that's the business we're in. And I think there's going to be a lot of great opportunities in the CLO space. There's a lot of peripheral things that are going to be really, really interesting. I don't think it's going to be, the world's not going to end. This is a really tough one. And it's tough because... There's so much uncertainty and so much just never seen anything like this before. But on the flip side, there's not a bad person. Nobody caused this. And you go back to 2008, the banks were the ones that really caused the problem. Well, the banks, which we have a lot of exposure to, to the Trump space, are better than they've ever been. They haven't taken much risk. And nobody's saying the banks are going to fail. Actually, you've really just deputized the banks and said, you're going to be the ones who get us through this thing. So I guess the banks, this is their way of paying back for all the problems they did. But I don't think we're going to have problems. I think Trump's is going to be fine. 
And that's a credit, which we're not going to see failures there. I think the CLO market is going to be really, really interesting. And I think it really comes down to, this is not a discipline where it's, I really understand credit, so I'm going to be really good at CLOs. You're going to get lost. You're going to put so much emphasis into just things which you shouldn't. And this is about, you need to have a process to take all this information and organize it and come up with a thesis to react. And that's something which I've been doing, figured out how to do a while ago. And it's come a long way. And they don't like my old spreadsheets anymore. And we have all this cool stuff and Python. And I, I didn't know what Python was until they explained it to me. But it's okay. I, I am in my old age. I'm learning. I'm even understanding millennials. What are you understanding about them? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you see as the biggest risks in the market going forward? There's always risks in the market. I think one of the biggest risks right now is, is that this is going to continue on and on and on for a longer period of time. We have too many people who, like I said, we're just taking money and doing stuff on repo. You're going to have defaults. There's no doubt about it. But it's not going to be as bad as the rating agencies are saying in their downgrades. And that actually is a benefit because it's it will force paper out. Insurance companies' capital charges are going to go through the roof when that triple B bond goes down to single B. And that's going to cause it. So you may have need some changes. I mean, look, after the 08 crisis, we went in and we fixed a lot of things. We made banks very, very conservative, which was a great, great thing for me. I don't know if there's a place that they can point to with the exception of some of the dumb things they've done in retail recently, which these ETFs, which seeing oil go negative because they create a product because they want to sell it to retail. And there's probably been five other ETFs which have just evaporated. This is wrong where they're selling these products. Now, I'm not talking about the ones that mimic the S&P or the Dow. I'm talking about the triple levered short, triple Q NASDAQ or the oil one. There was a great article written in the FT and the title says everything, the Muppets versus the Sharks. People who trade oil are pros and they knew exactly what was going on with the storage. And all these ETFs didn't realize that there was no way they were going to be able to roll their contracts. And they're paying people $38 a barrel to take it away. This shouldn't happen. You should not be selling over-the-counter products with leverage that take 10 days to settle like a leverage loan to retail and acting like, yeah, it's all going to be fine when it's not. All right, Brad, I want to turn to some closing questions. But before we do, I'd like to circle back to lacrosse. Because I know that you were involved from very early on with the Premier Lacrosse League, PLL, and I had had Paul Rabel on the show talking about it. So I would love to just hear your involvement in that and a little bit of what's happened. I'm involved with two different organizations in regards to lacrosse. I'm on the board of the Touraton, which is basically the Heisman Trophy for college lacrosse. They also do a lot to help with the history of the game, and they also help a lot with Native American causes, which I think is just a great thing because that's a group of people who really need some help. And that's just been a great thing. But it was, I was sitting in my office and I saw this Bloomberg top story about Paul Rabel starting a new lacrosse league. And a few years before I had actually spoken to the folks at the other league, which was the MLL. And after speaking to them for an hour, I walked away and kind of shook my head as they didn't really understand what to do with it. It wasn't going anywhere. But when I saw the article, 
I started to read about the different organizations that he was involved with. And it wasn't different coaches or different equipment manufacturers. It was the Rain Group, which is one of the premier merchant banks for media and sports and different types of alternative things like that. And CAA and different organizations that really were smart in media. So I picked up the phone. I called the Rain Group. I introduced myself. I said, I'd like to have a meeting. I sat down with Mike and Paul, and they reminded me a lot of when in 2008 I was starting Hill Dean. Paul was arguably the best player in the world. And he just said, I'm going to keep this up to try and make something right. And his brother, Mike, just had the business savvy, and they had surrounded themselves with a lot of really, really smart people, but not smart people in the world of sports. They had some of those. It was smart people from the media, from social media, the things they do in social media is amazing. It was one of these things where I told them something early on. I said, look, when I was raising money, everybody said that everybody wants to be first to be second. I'm going to be first, okay? I believe in you guys. I like what you're doing. I don't see all of it. I didn't see the tour-based model, but now I do. I didn't see some of the other things they did as Paul started to talk about pro wrestling. And then I said, no, no, I, I get now the pro wrestling angle to it. And I told him I, I want to be an investor, but I want to be involved. It's really the only other thing I'm involved with outside of Hildeen, and I'm a board member. And the board's pretty impressive. And they've got another major investor in Joe Sy, who played lacrosse at Yale, and also has done pretty well for himself and owns a sports franchise. And the other board member is a gentleman by the name of Doc O'Connor, who ran CAA for 25 years, started CAA Sports, ran MSG. And I'm sort of the guy who doesn't have that much experience, but is pretty enthusiastic. But I think more importantly about it is just this is something which I think if anyone's going to make it, they're going to make it. Early on, adopted a team. When I saw the logo for Chaos, since I, I would say traffic and chaos, and the team they had, and I'm, I know the coach well, I made Chaos my team. I also needed a team because I have grown up being a Jets fan. I got a great brother-in-law, and every year he calls me up and he's telling me how this is the year, and I said, you're doing it to yourself. I'm just doing it to yourself. never going to happen. I actually told my son one day when he said, you know, why don't we go to church? And I said, you know, son, listen, we don't need to go to church because every Sunday we learn about disappointment and sacrifice by watching the Jets. So I now have a team, Chaos LC. I don't know if they like the fact that I have a team, but I'm very excited. I know it's going to be a different season. What I will say is, is that, They've got something really, really cool going on. I think NBC loves it. I think the product they put out was phenomenal. The stuff they do in social media is great. My wife's excited because she's like, wow, you got something else besides work now you can focus on. Well, let's turn to a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? And maybe we'll say work and family and lacrosse. I just started to learn how to play golf. I had a set of clubs. I would play every once in a while. But I really, like I do with a lot of other things, decided to teach myself how to play golf and I would go to simulators. And it's something where I'm getting good and understanding what I'm doing wrong. And I kind of took it from the bottoms up where I actually looked at the club and said, why is this club designed like this? How should I hit the ball? And I really enjoy it. I'm enjoying it. And hopefully I will get good enough one day. How much time are you getting to spend on your short game? Not as much as I was. I mean, <laughs> I would go after work to a simulator at Chelsea Pierce in Stanford and put an hour in. I could usually play 27 holes and hit, and it would show you what you were doing wrong. And I was doing that before COVID and 
But now I'm not doing that much, but this will all pass by one day. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who are condescending because they're insecure. And I think you see that in a lot of places, but I think the one place we're probably seeing it more than any place else is the White House. And you see it with people who are just trying to put themselves on a pedestal, but people who just are condescending because of their insecurities. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? I just think these ETFs need to be really analyzed because everyone comes up with these products to sell it to retail and they all work in theory until they don't work. And then you've got people who are losing everything. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So, you know, we talked about my mom, about how she came over here. I think she had a great way to adapt to different things. I think she had a great positive outlook on life, but I think she also realized that what she needed to help out and do things that's for the bigger cause. I mean, look, I'll just say this, that when I started going to prep school, she got a job. I'm pretty sure she paid my tuition. So, you know, I, I remember that. I thank her for that. And I've set up some scholarships and a foundation, which is named the Catherine Jefferson Foundation. So, you know, hopefully that'll go. So my, my wife is also Catherine Jefferson. So I didn't put a middle initial in there. I just kept it just for all Catherine. It's all Catherine. I think with my dad, because he had so much time, he could just teach himself how to do things and he would get hobbies and teach himself how to fix things. And I think my ability to just sort of break things down and understand them, I got a lot of that from him. Great. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Just to be more balanced. I mean, sometimes I go at things so hard that I forget some of the important things. And I think my wife, who is awesome and has also told me that when I come home, I need to be home. That's physically and mentally that I try to come home and I am there mentally and to have more balance. I think when this crisis hit, though, she she went off to Florida. She looked at what was going on and it was sort of like, no, nah, I'm going to be busy for a while. And then we're busy. Yeah, we're busy. But we'll get through this. We'll get through this. Brett, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Ted. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.